Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host, Crawford Gribben. Today, my guest is Elizabeth L. Jemison. Elizabeth teaches American Religious History at Clemson University in South Carolina, and we're talking to Elizabeth today about her new book, Christian Citizens, Reading the Bible in Black and White in the Post-Emancipation South, just published by the University of North Carolina Press, late 2020. Elizabeth, Many congratulations on the book and welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Well, before we talk about this important new book, Christian Citizens, could you tell us something about yourself and what brought you to the writing of this project? Yes. Yeah, so this book um, had its first origin in my doctoral dissertation at Harvard University. Um, and there I was particularly interested um, in looking at questions of um, race and gender in the South, but I'm also deeply interested in the ways that theology was shaping concepts of race and gender. Um, I ended up focusing on this region. region. We can talk more about the region uh, later, but it's also part of my own story. It's where I grew up in the United States. Um, But I've noticed particularly in histories of um, 19th century Christianity, uh, many of them are deeply rooted in theological ideas, but not very focused on concepts of race and gender. Um, On the other hand, um, a lot of histories of that time period that do focus uh, deeply on race and gender tend to miss out how deeply important Christian theological ideas are in the shaping of imagined worlds, of how people interpret massive changes in their lives. And so I wanted to bring those two kind of areas of study together um, and to study this particular region that had um, a particularly um, rapid change over the course of the several decades after the Civil War. Thanks, Elizabeth. I mean, the, the, the book is a real roller coaster, isn't it? From the liberation and optimism that follows upon emancipation to the very different circumstances that come with segregation in the 1890s and early 20th century. Just in a nutshell, could you tell us what your key themes or key arguments are as the book progresses from beginning to end? Yes. Um, and so you've pointed out that there are there's tremendous change in this time period. And The reason the book is titled Christian Citizens is because what I noticed was over the course of tremendous changes from African-American voter majorities to um, first violent disenfranchisement to then legal disenfranchisement of African-American men and many other changes of the same time period, um, white and African-American Protestant groups tended to have opposite definitions of what it meant to be a Christian and a citizen. Both thought Christian citizenship was quite important. Um, but they meant very different things. For African-Americans, many of whom would have been enslaved before emancipation, um, Christian citizenship meant that both true Christianity properly understood and the newly amended U.S. Constitution and associated Reconstruction laws both supported their equality, both supported equal civil and political rights. Um, For white Protestants, the story was entirely different. They thought that both true Christianity and their preferred version of what U.S. citizenship should be, uh, both enforced hierarchy. For both of them, it was about um, submission to 
uh, the white men whom God had placed in charge of households, of churches, and of societies. Um, and so one of these arguments, the African-American version of Christian citizenship, was an argument for full political participation, for full equality. Um, and the white Christian citizenship argument was an, a sort of an argument to reconstruct the logic of pro-slavery Christianity and to bring it into the post-emancipation period uh, with ultimately the creation of legal segregation and the disenfranchisement um, of African-Americans, both the loss of political rights as well as loss of many civil rights. Now, one of the things I think that makes this project so compelling and disturbing um, in equal measure is the intensity with which you read sources from a particular region. It's a regional study, obviously, with massive implications nationally. But the region you're interested in, as you mentioned before, is the lower Mississippi River Valley. For the benefit of people perhaps who don't come from this part of the world, um, could you just explain what this region is and what, why it matters in this period? Yes, yeah, so this region, and I'm focusing particularly on the U.S. states of Mississippi, Arkansas, Louisiana, and then the western portion of Tennessee. It's essentially the area on either side of the Mississippi River in the United States. It's the western part of what becomes the U.S. Confederate, the Confederate States of the United States. Um, and the reason I focus on this region is because the political pendulum swings wider and faster and more violently there than really anywhere else in the South. Um, and so in the years um, from emancipation in the middle of the Civil War to um, the turn of the 20th century, you see much more rapid change um, in this area and often much more violent change. And I think that's that sort of gives you a kind of, um, uh, it gives the religious actors, the folks I, I focus on, um, it, it requires them to adjust more rapidly than in other parts of this of the United States. So to give examples from other parts of the South, if we were talking about Virginia, if we were talking about North Carolina, um, those areas would have had um, African-American voting rights through uh, a later period than what happens in this region. Um, if you look at many of the most violent events of this time period, of the sort of decades after the Civil War, they're largely in this region. Now, not 100 percent of them, but certainly the most violent day of Reconstruction was in Louisiana, the Colfax Massacre. Um, two um, massive uh, riots and massacres of African-Americans in the summer of 1866 helped to push uh, for the 14th Amendment nationally. Um, and they happened in Memphis, Tennessee, and in New Orleans. And so you see the ways that um, this region was not just sort of something that kind of stood out from the rest of the South, although it did. It's also a place where national politics were being worked out in various ways. Um, you know, the Mississippi elections of 1875 were seen as a particularly violent, a particularly unjust um, state election, because even though it was still theoretically the period of Reconstruction, when the federal government was invested in protecting black civil and political rights, uh, then President Grant, U.S. President Grant, refused to send troops when the Mississippi governor asked for help in maintaining fair and free elections. Instead, you had sort of marauding bands of white men, these large mobs um, that both were deeply violent, murdering African-American would-be voters, and also threatening many others, threatening them with loss of jobs, with loss of credit with local merchants, uh, with uh, violence towards themselves and their families. And so what you have in 1875 is essentially a trial run for what happens if white Southerners 
are left to their own devices. And Mississippi is particularly a dramatic place for that because up until that point, for the last several years, it had had a black voter majority um, and was one of only two states, Mississippi and South Carolina, that had that in this period. So the reason I focus on this region is because it's, um, its political history is so distinctive. But its religious history is also somewhat distinctive because if I were focused more on the East Coast states, say Virginia, South Carolina, states that had a long history of an Anglican establishment before the American Revolution and then a strong Episcopal church thereafter, you would find, again, more of that kind of established Anglican or Episcopal um, service and um, that theology. Instead, you have much more of the kind of populist um, evangelical Protestantism in this region. Uh, Methodists are the largest group, many stripes of Methodists, as I go into in the book. Um, but also Baptists, there are large numbers of Presbyterians. I do have some Episcopalians who pop in and a few other groups at various times, um, Quakers and others. Um, but in, in general, the populist groups that are most uh, central to this region in this time period are those that are much more comfortable with sort of ad-libbing their scriptural interpretation in light of what's happening around them politically. They're more flexible in terms of how they're applying the Bible um, to this rapidly changing political spectrum. And so because of that, you find um, ministers as well as lay people who are willing to sort of open their Bibles and look for lessons about their tumultuous present. Um, so you see um, in, in the first chapter, there's a woman um, who's a, a, from a very wealthy white Mississippi family faced with um, not only a lot of Union soldiers in her church because of Union occupation in the middle of the Civil War, but then a, a black man comes and demands a seat in the midst of the white congregation rather than in the balcony where enslaved people were normally forced to sit. And so she's sort of distraught by this event and records it in her diary with her own biblical interpretation about how God is testing the Confederacy before God will ensure its ultimate success. Um, that kind of freedom to interpret, I think, is something I find both on the part of lay people and on the part of their ministers. Um, ministers who are very willing to say, you know, that God is on the side of, of the defense of slavery initially, that God is, um, has allowed emancipation, as one of my um, ministers and Methodist says, has allowed emancipation as a trial or an affliction, much like Job would have experienced, um, but not because sort of the implication is not because slavery was somehow unjust or um, a sin or something that failed to meet a biblical standard. Um, the ways that these folks are willing to think religiously is very helpful because I think it helps to shape not only their individual lives and congregations, but whole denominations. Um, I see the ideas that are being framed here, particularly in the part, well, on the part both of white and African-American groups, um, as shaping national conversations in years to come. So when white Southerners defend uh, their logic of pro-slavery theology and bring it forward after emancipation, I see them as setting the ground for 20th and even 21st century conversations about biblical orthodoxy needing to resist new social changes. In this case, it's about race, racial equality, um, but you see it in the early fundamentalist movement around all kinds of other issues. You see it in the late 20th century in the United States around issues of gender equality, um, LGBT rights, and things like that. On the African-American side, you see the ways that um, African-American Christian groups are, first of all, they're varied. There's not one answer. But all of their versions of Christian citizenship are invested in um, defending and applying their ideas to the present. So there's not one simple idea, but rather there's a denunciation of white violence. There's a denunciation also um, 
of any kind of racial hierarchy as sin. Um, they love to use this story from Acts chapter 10 of Peter sort of the Apostle Peter um, having a vision of unclean animals and then sort of inspiring him not to draw distinctions between Jewish and Gentile followers of Christ. And they use that. Um, David Walker had used that in the antebellum period of black abolitionists. But they're using it to argue for civil and political rights in this time period. And so I see the ways that they're using the Bible and using it um, to defend civil and political equality. And um, that seems really significant because it's not just happening. It's happening in this region amid rapid changes. But it's the arguments are being spread around the area. Thanks, Elizabeth. Now, you, your book is really elegantly structured through these major thematic, but also chronological stages. And the, the first big stage that we come to is emancipation. And your chapter describing emancipation and its immediate aftermath shows, I think, both how emancipation happens in stages as the Union Army advances, but also that it's met almost immediately with arresting levels of violence. Um, why, why was that? I think that it's a great question. It's one that um, sort of just shows, I think, how um, obvious to those of us in the 20th and 21st century that slavery was wrong and needed to be ended is now, and how deeply, deeply uh, white Southerners viewed it differently at the time. Um, for them, this was a, this, they viewed the institution of slavery as both legally defensible as an issue of property rights and morally and religiously defensible because they've been spending decades developing and disseminating defenses of slavery. Um, historian um, Stephanie McCurry um, years ago noted that the majority of every defense of slavery written in the antebellum period was written by a white Southern minister. So the, the sort of religious arguments here uh, were not just sort of a tangent, a side political and economic arguments. They're the centerpiece of what's happening here. Um, and so for those who built their ideas of Christian orthodoxy around the idea that slavery was legitimate, that it was just, that it was designed by God, um, it was incredibly chaotic and um, disturbing for them to think that this could possibly be ending. Um, the biggest U.S. denominations, the Methodist Church and the Baptist Church, divided in the 1840s over this issue. Um, the Presbyterians had formed their own a Presbyterian Church of the Confederate States of America at the start of the Civil War, with old and new school Presbyterians coming together to decide that those those important disputes of a previous decade or two um, no longer mattered because what they really needed to do was to defend the Confederacy. And so for all of them, their idea of Christian orthodoxy was so deeply tied into the defense of slavery, um, as well as their own personal and economic views, um, their refusal to see African-Americans as um, potentially their equals, or even sort of similar to them in any kind of substantial ways, um, meant that they were completely shocked when emancipation came. And it came largely instigation of enslaved people who you know, fled as Union troops approached behind Union lines, joined contraband camps, which were essentially like refugee camps um, at the time. Uh, these were not great uh, circumstances. They were not living in particularly healthy or safe environments, but they were escaping enslavement. And that was what was most important. And so um, what I see in the chapter is that immediately after emancipation, immediately after the Civil War ends, white Southerners are already doing the work of reestablishing racial hierarchies um, in several states. And Mississippi is one that I mentioned in the book. Um, 
white Southern legislatures pass what are known as black code laws that are meant to limit the economic freedom, the political freedom, um, other civil and political rights of um, anyone of African descent in those states. And one of the things they, they do is actually they also try to limit uh, religious freedom. They try to demand that anyone with, that one can only preach if you have a license. Um, and that's effort in having a license to preach is also a really important um, way of trying to limit who has a voice, whose political and religious ideas can matter, because they recognize, white Southerners recognize, that African-American religion can be a really powerful force for um, equality, for emancipation, for um, self-determination, and for communities fighting for autonomy. And so it seems in some ways very odd to us that emancipation might be met with such violence. But in the context there, it makes perfect sense that white Southerners who had fought in every possible way to defend slavery in a slaveholders republic in the Confederacy would then immediately shift towards trying to preserve what they could of that system after emancipation. Mm. I think w w one of the really striking things about your chapter on Reconstruction, Elizabeth, is the way in which the African Methodist Episcopal Church emerges as a very powerful and very credible religious and political force. Uh, and it develops um, sometimes ways that its critics regard as quite threatening, even as critics like Benjamin Palmer or Robert L. Dabney continue to voice the same kind of paternalistic social theory um, that you've just been describing. How does all of that work out uh, in, in, in the, the, the 1860s, early 1870s? Part of what I see there is this is when the two very distinctive forms of Christian citizenship are fully articulated, that they really are um, systems of incommensurable difference, that you have on the one hand the AME church, which has its roots several decades earlier, primarily in the antebellum north, but it's expanding rapidly um, and is recognizing, as its you know antebellum members had, the powerful connections between um, religious ideas of equality, of God um, equally blessing all peoples, and the powerful organizing ability that the church can have. Uh, one thing I note in that chapter on Reconstruction is that when the AME Church brings its um, every four years general conference meeting to the South for the first time, to Nashville, Tennessee, um, they explicitly call for the passage of certain legislation uh, nationally that would defend um, Black civil and political rights. Um, a civil rights bill, not unlike the Civil Rights Act in the 1964 that the U.S. passed. Um, but they also sort of warn Republicans, uh, which are the party of Abraham Lincoln, the party that all uh, freed people were basically supporting at this point, that they shouldn't take black voters for granted, um, that they should recognize that the AME church, and they, and they go through and list this in a sort of resolution, you know, the many, many mem members they have, the uh, huge clergy pool that they have, but the fact that, you know, on the average Sunday, they argue a million people are hearing what they have to say. Um, and so they warn that they are a powerful political force that needs to be addressed and reckoned with. And I think that's a really important way that they're taking their Christian citizenship. And they're saying this sh we should be recognized because we have real political um, power and um, and because we have the right theological argument, because God is on our side and we are interpreting the Bible correctly. Um, for them, it was obvious that um, there should be no racial distinction. Uh, and so um, with that, they're thinking about 
um, a sort of a whole host of different arguments. And they'll, they'll have to adapt those in decades to come as they really lose that political power, um, as they're stripped of it, perhaps more accurately. But at the same time, what they envision a proper Christian society to be is completely foreign and even anathema to what Benjamin Palmer, Robert Dabney, and other white Southern divines would think. Uh, both Dabney and Palmer are distinguished uh, Reformed or Presbyterian theologians. But I see many of the same types of arguments from Southern Methodists, um, from Southern Baptists and others. Um, one of the things that really struck me in writing the book was the ways that people who might, ministers who might be deeply committed to their particular denominational doctrines. Um, you know, a, a local Presbyterian minister I mentioned in the book um, who didn't have the kind of national or regional reach that a Palmer or a Dabney would, would spend his evenings and record in his diary how he was reading, you know, uh, Jonathan Edwards treatises or and some of them on sort of what he was, refers to as the, you know, the absurdity of Arminian theology, of Methodist theology. And yet at crucial moments, that Presbyterian who thinks that Methodist theology is absurd has exactly the same political interpretation as a distinguished Methodist minister in his same state. That this defense of a white led order, um, an order that they that white Southern Christians are ordered, argue, excuse me, was truly biblical, was more important than even crucial distinctions around how to celebrate communion or whether infant baptism was appropriate or not, um, whether people were predestined to heaven or hell or not. These were crucial issues, and yet they all paled beyond the important racial differences. So for all of these groups, they would continue to look towards what they claimed was the appropriate interpretation of the New Testament. Um, they, like their antebellum, uh, pro-slavery stalwarts would argue that the four places where the Bible defends slavery, seemingly, uh, where the four places in the New Testament where it says the slaves are instructed to obey their masters in different epistles, that all of those are paired with instructions for wives to obey their husbands. Most of them are paired with instructions for children to obey um, parents, sort of a sense of household hierarchy that God is invested in orderly households. And so these these same figures would argue that it would be absurd to consider uh, women equal to men in marriage. And so it was equally absurd for them to consider having um, racial equality. That for them, um, clearly God's design was one of order. God's design was one of submission to those in authority because that was a divinely created hierarchy. And so you see that it's not just the Calvinists who are making those claims, but it's many. Um, and the people who would even be unwilling to, say, celebrate communion or, or Lord's Supper Eucharist with one another because of their deep theological divides were very willing to give sermons in their respective pulpits, defending the same politicians, defending the same unjust elections. And so what I see is that while African-American Christians are arguing that racism, racial hierarchy in any form is sin, white Southern Christians are arguing precisely the opposite, that God wants social hierarchy. God wants white men to govern households and govern society. And so there's a real disconnect in how these Christians, who all claim that they are taking the Bible very seriously, are interpreting what's happening around them. Mm. And your book shows, Elizabeth, that, what, 10 years or so after the end of the war, uh, Dabney is publishing his History of Virginia, Benjamin Palmer is publishing his book on the family and the household structure, and at the same time, the Mississippi plan is put in operation, which, as you explain, leads to one of the most violently contested elections in U.S. history. How does all of this connect? 
Yeah. So I think that you see the ways in which what's happening there is there's a process of working to undo reconstruction. It's working to um, end the active defense of black civil and political rights, which we think about congressional reconstruction, the years where the U.S. Congress was deeply invested in that defense. Um, it's not quite a decade. So it's the late 1860s until the mid um, 1870s. It ends with a contested election in 1876. Um, but even, in, as I said, in 1875, Mississippi is already testing the limits of that and showing the, the growing apathy, frankly, of the northern white public um, to defending civil and political rights for black Americans. Um, and so what I see is that there's an argument there. There's sort of a, a an effort and you kind of get about a decade after the end of the war. Many white Southerners have the resources to defend their own views more strongly. I mean, they, they literally have the infrastructure. They have the kind of reaccumulated wealth. They have the rebuilt churches um, and they have a sort of growing audience in both the South and the nation to listen to their side of the story. Um, as many Northern white um, Christians and others begin to tire of the very brief effort they've expended to defend um, the equal rights of their fellow black citizens, you see that there's a, a space for both political action, political transformation, and for um, the kind of religious argumentation to argue that what white Southerners want to be doing and what they'll continue to argue in the, in the 1880s, they have always been doing. They kind of overlook most of the 1860s and early 1870s, but they have always been working to defend the types of paternalism that they have seen in um, the antebellum South. They kind of take the, the version of the antebellum South that they have sort of fictionalized in pro-slavery theological texts, um, things that were being written in the 1850s about the 1850s that were already lies. They were fictions that were meant to defend slavery. And then by the 1880s, they're arguing that that's really how things were. That's the real historical account. Um, and it's a model for their actions moving forward. Um, and so what I see is they kind of are able to regroup um, and they are very quick to do so in a rather um, violent and aggressive way, one that completely discounts uh, black voices as those of fellow Christians or of fellow citizens. White Southerners only want to listen to other white Southerners. Um, and so you see that they're kind of putting themselves in an echo chamber where they only hear each other. They only consider each other to be properly orthodox um, in their Christian theology. And as a result, you see that they're really not willing to consider um, other people's perspectives or other voices. So, Elizabeth, your book moves almost interminably towards segregation and the violent politics that, that are so often associated with that. As, as we move from the beginning to the end of your book and think about this issue of Christ, Christian citizenship, who do we see winning that debate? Well, I think we see it depends on how we're defining winning. Um, if we mean who ends up with political power by 1900, it's entirely white Southerners. Um, they have created in Mississippi, there's an, a new state constitution in 1890 that becomes the model for segregation across the region. Um, it introduces ideas like poll taxes, taxes you have to pay to be able to vote in the polls, or literacy tests for voters, um, tests that would limit the right to vote to those who can pass a, a very arbitrarily constructed literacy tests. Other neighboring states add on to this with grandfather clauses that if your grandfather could vote, you don't need to pass these tests. You can see all the ways that they're constructing voting 
um, as a right only for white men um, in defiance of the 15th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution that says that race shall not be used uh, to limit the right to vote. They find ways around it with all these these different issues that would not be undone until 1865 in the U.S. Voting Rights Act. It was one of the signal pieces um, of signal sort of victory points in the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s. And so if you're asking who won the political power by that time, into that time period, it's the white Southerners. They have total political control. Um, white Democrats would control the South for decades. If you're asking a broader question about what kinds of arguments are going to win, what you see in that region is that African-American Christians have created very compelling theological arguments. They've created, created very compelling ways of connecting political and theological power. Um, they're not able to use that much in some of the early decades of the 20th century. But it, those ideas do shape national conversations. They shape the early work of the NAACP founded in the, in the first years of the 20th century. They shape the kinds of national conversations that would be continuing um, before, during, and after the U.S. civil rights movement. Um, so I see that it's not entirely a story of, of certainly a failure. It's a story of white violence, um, of the ways that white Christians used their, Christ, their versions of Christian orthodoxy to deny uh, their fellow black, fellow, both fellow Christians and fellow citizens, civil and political rights. And from that, you see that th those arguments really did have power um, and that they have continued well beyond that time period. Well, Elizabeth, it's been such a pleasure to speak to you today and um, we've taken up a lot of your time, but it's been great to think uh, with you a little bit more about your excellent new book, Christian Citizens, Reading the Bible in Black and White in the Post-Emancipation South. Um, but before we wind up our conversation, could you tell us what you might be working on next? Yes. Yeah, so um, one of the things I noticed at the end of the time period for the book was the ways that by the 1890s, some of the most important interactions across racial lines were happening among church women. Um, as black men were having their political rights stripped from them, women were really taking the leadership, um, were having some of the only and very rare and fraught cross-racial conversations. And so I'm interested in sort of following that into the 20th century for the next book to look at the ways that um, among various different Southern denominations, white and black church women, uh, women who were also involved in um, fights for suffrage, um, fights against lynching in several cases, um, in efforts to organize themselves in clubs and in other kinds of networks, that those women are engaged in a type of conversation around uh, their roles as Christian women. Um, it's a very lopsided conversation. Uh, many of the white women are very oblivious to the ways that what they think of as a universal version of motherhood is so deeply raced and classed. Um, but I see this as an important set of conversations. And so the next book is looking to follow those conversations from the 1890s into the sort of post-World War II period at the beginning of the civil rights movement to see how these ideas of Christian motherhood are being constructed, Christian womanhood in particular being constructed in this time period. Well, that sounds great. Um, I look forward to seeing that when it comes out, whatever form it takes. But for now, Elizabeth, it's been great to talk to you and thank you so much for your time and for coming on to the show to talk about your great new book, Christian Citizens Reading the Bible in Black and White in the Post-Emancipation South, just published by University of North Carolina Press at the end of 2020. Thanks for your time and take care. Thank you very much. And thanks to everyone else for listening in today. I'll see you next time on New Books and Christian Studies a channel on the New Books Network podcast.